Hello, my name is Christine Murray. Welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Valerie Byrne is a landscape architect and the founder of Where Pathways Meet. Her work lies at the intersection of nature, cities, and communities. And in her previous role at Better Bankside, um, she led the innovative Bankside Urban Forest Partnership and also worked on the low line. Uh, so let's listen into some of that work and our conversation about how wayfinding and green spaces uh, can be woven in with the history and textures of a place. So I'm Valerie Byrne. Um, I'm the founder of Where Pathways Meet, which is a uh, creative placemaking consultancy based here in London. Um, I'm a landscape architect um, by training and um, up until Earlier on this year, I worked for 14 years for um, a business improvement district in London called Better Bankside, where I managed the Bankside Urban Forest and Low Line programs. So I wanted to ask you about Bankside Urban Forest. Can you tell me a little bit about how it started and what it became and, and what it is for people who've, who've never heard of it? Absolutely. Um, so Bankside Urban Forest is a fantastic um placemaking sort of strategy for the Bankside neighbourhood. Um, and for those who are perhaps unfamiliar with where Bankside is in London, it's the it's the very sort of old historic neighbourhood directly across the river from the, the city of London and St Paul's Cathedral. So it's kind of anchored by um, Tate Modern, Shakespeare's Globe and Borough Market and Southern Cathedral, big sort of landmarks like that. Um, and it's home to a very sort of diverse mix of um, commercial businesses, cultural attractions and institutions and um, very rooted residential community. Um, and since the Tate Modern opened back in 2000 um, and since Shakespeare's Globe and the Millennium Bridge were all sort of conceived and, um, and built in the late 90s, the area has undergone a huge amount of change um, and regeneration. There's been a huge amount of development um, in the area. And I think it's worth noting that as a, you know, as a, as a neighbourhood in London, it's an incredibly old and historic um, piece of the city. And it's got, you know, really fascinating history. It still has its kind of medieval street pattern. So it's, you know, it's a very unique part of London um, and, you know, has so many interesting qualities. Um, as a place, um, you know, from its from its history uh, of, you know, the industries and the people that live there. And it's, you know, how it's kind of changed even in the last sort of 20 years or so. Um, so it's a really interesting part of London. And when when the Tate opened, obviously, you know, that brought a huge amount of footfall to the area and Millennium Bridge and Shakespeare's Globe, all of these kind of big, um, big transformations started to bring sort of an influx of people, um, mostly along the, the riverside, um, along the Thames path. And, um, you know, that was fantastic. Um, that sort of um, sparked a wave of, of kind of redevelopment of some major sites kind of just behind the riverside. Um, and at that time, there was a huge amount of, um, of development underway and lots of kind of thinking going into, you know, these big buildings that were kind of cropping up. And nobody was really thinking about the spaces between the buildings. Um, and that's when um, 
kind of Better Bank side came into being as Business Improvement District in 2005. It was one of the, the first bids in the UK. Um, and they sort of, um, a business improvement district is, is a, a sort of partnership for all the businesses in an area um, club together and invest in the area and sort of um, set out a program for how the area is kind of better managed, you know, so that it delivers kind of, you know, environmental benefits, social benefits and economic benefits for, for the area. Um, and the bid at that time were really sort of keen to, to see how they could um, play a role in shaping um, how the spaces between the buildings could be um, could be better sort of planned for as as developments were coming forward. So a partnership was um, was formed between the local authority, which is Southwark Council, um, the bid, some of the major landowners at the time, so land securities and native land. Um, Tate were obviously really keen to be involved because they were such a cultural kind of linchpin in the area. Um, and at that time, the Architecture Foundation was due to have its um, headquarters in Bankside. So they also can, came to the table. So this kind of incredible mix of, um, of institutions and with very different kind of viewpoints came together and sort of put together a, a design brief that sort of challenged um, uh, designers to think, you know, well, how could we how could we better manage kind of what happens between all these big developments that are happening in this neighbourhood? Because, you know, you've got this very old kind of fabric of the city with its medieval street pattern and, you know, beautiful Victorian warehouses and higgledy-piggledy streets. Um, and then you have all of this new sort of glass and concrete buildings going up. And how do you make sure that the, the pieces in between don't get left behind? So a brief was originally issued, and this was like before I joined um, Better Bankside. Originally, it was called Bankside Urban Park. And it invited proposals to kind of set out a strategy for um, for managing, you know, the streets and spaces and, and planning for them. Um, and it was um, it was a very sort of highly <laughs> uh, competitive process, which in the end was won by a firm of architects called Witherford Watson Mann, who at that time um, were still a kind of fairly young up and coming practice. They've since gone on and won Sterling Prize and, you know, really gone from strength to strength. And they had a, an incredible um, consortium team that put together, um, uh, you know, writers um, and thinkers about, you know, who are really passionate about kind of landscape and, and cities. Um, they had, you know, transport consultants, they had accessibility consultants, landscape consultants, and they had a very rich um, design team that kind of responded to this brief and they sort of challenged the the idea of kind of thinking of it as a park and they sort of um propose this kind of idea of looking at it through the lens of a forest and the ecology of a forest um and they kind of likened the the sort of fabric and um you know that medieval character of you know it's so easy to get lost in bankside because the roads you know are just so sinuous and labyrinthine um so they sort of suggested that you know by calling it a forest it sort of immediately opens up kind of possibilities and kind of frees the imagination to to think about um you know to think about these spaces in in a way that if we just looked at it like a park which has very sort of clear boundaries quite you know rigid rules and regulations about what might be able to happen um so they just um yeah it just really sort of uh, resonated i think with the with the client team at that point and so bankside urban forest was was born um and their sort of piece of work um they set out a, a sort of strategy and a vision for the area and for the the way the spaces could evolve um and then that strategy was then used to 
um, to guide the development of kind of, of design briefs as as different pieces of the puzzle um, kind of were unlocked over time. And I think kind of what what really worked and what was really powerful about their proposal um, or their idea of the urban forest is that it wasn't it was kind of the opposite of like a master plan approach to the city where, you know, it's big, you know, everything has to happen in a certain order and it's very quite rigid and um, like the, the urban forest was, you know, completely the antithesis to that. And it was provided a very kind of flexible framework for, you know, the client team, but also for like the wider community to use when they were thinking about projects and commissioning projects in the in the urban realm. So just so people understand when they arrive at Bankside they're not going to find a forest in one <laughs> plot of land somewhere this isn't you know a kind of um uh, it's not kind of a bit of wilderness in the middle of the no. so so maybe what is the the urban forest in the end now as it's become so the urban forest is a, a series of um, of kind of public realm interventions that have happened in different streets and spaces across the area. Um, you're right; it's not a literal forest because it would be absolutely impossible. And that was one of the challenges. You know, I think on the the flip side of the coin, one of the challenges is sort of communicating the forest and managing people's kind of um, expectations as to what it is. Um, but I think, you know, all of the projects that we've delivered over over the years in partnership, and I think it's worth just um, kind of reiterating that it is like it, it's always been a partnership, you know, initiative. So Better Bankside kind of led, um, you know, led the partnership, but it was very much informed by all of the different um, people around the table. Um, and it's absolutely had urban greening at its heart. So although it's not a literal urban forest, you know, all the projects kind of combined have like delivered, you know, hundreds of trees into the area, um, but they're kind of dispersed through streets and housing estates and, and things like that. Um, but we've also transformed, you know, so many streets to make them more pedestrian friendly and, um, you know, supporting active travel and providing spaces for people to sit and slow down and, you know, have that social interaction. Um, so the urban forest kind of strategy that Witherford Watson Man wrote and produced, that's kind of informed all of the projects that kind of came after. Um, most of them were kind of permanent improvements to the public realm. So, you know, pedestrianising streets, um, or narrowing narrowing roads, um, but it also kind of gave us the flexibility to um, you know to implement um, temporary projects and you know trial projects, testing projects. So it's been an incredibly sort of powerful tool, I suppose, for the for the neighbourhood um, to guide our, our thinking and our practice. And not just trees, too. Not just trees. Other plantings, not just trees. So planting no. cycle paths and yeah. you know, public realm spaces. Absolutely. And through it, we've delivered green roofs and green walls. So is, you know, I, I know Better Bankside, you mentioned, was one of the first bids in the UK. And usually they're seeking to kind of encourage footfall, encourage people to walk past their businesses or to make that uh, business area nicer, a better experience. Um, do, you, do you see them as being uh, committed? Like, what is the perception of urban greening in that context and what it delivers for businesses in a given area yeah well certainly sort of my experience in in bankside and more recently actually i've done a little bit of work over for the um 
new business improvement district in Kensington for like Kensington High Street. And urban greening is is incredibly um, important for for businesses. Um, and it's been really interesting kind of working in those two very, very different contexts in London. Um, and I think there's, you know, I think people definitely see the value that urban greening um, kind of contributes to an area sort of, you know, obviously environmentally, um, you know, urban greening brings, you know, a huge amount of, of environmental benefits. But I think people really sort of value the um you know, the kind of added health and well-being sort of value of being kind of close to nature and being connected and having the opportunity to interact with nature. Um, and I think when we um, in Bankside created the role of um, the Bankside Urban Gardener to help us kind of maintain the, the network of green spaces that we had delivered through our projects, um, that role, you know, it was a a new role and it's kind of grown organically, but one of the kind of key components of it now is that we run employee volunteering activities and lunch breaks um, where, you know, we get people out of their offices to help, you know, maintain some of the, the pockets of, of green space on, on streets and, and public spaces in the neighbourhood. And, you know, th that for, for businesses is, is hugely important to kind of give their employees that opportunity and that outlet to, you know, to connect with nature while at work. Um, and I think that's a trend that's that's you know going to absolutely continue sort of as we move out of the pandemic and and into kind of whatever the the future brings. Do you think there's um, you know this this idea of wanting to connect with the nature and connect with the plants, but the plants aren't always particularly happy in this. You know, I'm sure the Bankside soil <clears throat> is not the most amazing <laughs> soil in the world, being in a uh, a really tough um, and you know medieval uh, streets with the you know the the challenges that that brings, and plus I'm sure every little narrow passageway has its own conditions. You know, for people who are thinking about bringing more green into these traditionally very, you know, dense, urban, maybe even mm. historic neighborhoods. What are some of the things they need to consider? What are the, some of the challenges that that are faced? Um, and, mm. uh, and where do you start? Yeah, it's a really good question. And certainly in Bankside, I mean, there's been huge challenges there for, um, you know, we, we've, we've, we've planted a lot of trees in the neighborhood um, through our projects, both on streets, you know, um, but also in, in housing estates. And I think one of the things that we found in, in that is that often, um, you know, you'll see a street that kind of lacks street trees. And you say, yes, you know, we can, we can green the street, we can get trees in the ground. And you start to do some ground investigations and you find a load of services um, from, you know, electricity, cables, gas, um, gas pipes, water pipes, um, cable, you know, cable TV, Wi-Fi, <laughs> you know, you name it, all of the other sort of city infrastructures are there kind of too close to the surface to um, to plant trees very often. Um, so that's why in a lot of our projects in Bankside, we've, um, you know, we've we've successfully depaved areas of, of streets and got, um, you know, got ground level sort of shrubs and um, more herbaceous kind of planting in the ground rather than than trees. So I think, you know, advice is to, to kind of do your, you know, do your surveys and, um, you know, do your ground condition surveys, understand kind of what's what's there and where the opportunities are. 
um, and you know find the professionals in your in your neighborhood you know who work in that field so your landscape architects your ecologists your engineers um who can advise you on you know how best to um to realize the you know the planting that you want to aim for it seems very enlightened for a bid to have a landscape architect leading a project like this. Is that normal for bids to have a, a landscape architect or a resident um, landscape architect? I think we were definitely our better bang side was definitely um, a pioneer. So you know, I joined in in two thousand and eight, um, and that was when sort of the the Bankside Urban Forest Strategy had had been commissioned and had been written and launched and. I came on board to um, to sort of pick that up and, and develop a program of projects in partnership with the the partners, um, and that's what I did for fourteen years. And we we worked on you know an incredible rich mix of of public realm um, projects, and so Better Bankside was definitely a pioneer in that field. And and since then, you know, I've been I've been really impressed with how business improvement districts in London, particularly because you know that's where I've I've lived and worked, um, so it's kind of what I'm most familiar with. But it's incredible how bids are now playing a more active role in shaping their their neighbourhoods. And you know, I think just looking at um, the Strand over or Aldwych over uh, the river, um, where North Bank bid has been really instrumental in in getting that sort of pedestrianisation of um, of the Strand implemented with Westminster Council, um, which is really exciting, you know, to, to see bids kind of leading the way. And likewise, Baker Street, um, you know, the two-way, um, NWEC are doing a huge amount in the, the West End. And, you know, so a, a lot of the central London bids are, are really sort of upping their game now in this. And I think the other thing, I guess, is that, um, you know, there's no kind of one size fits all. I think, you know, every every neighborhood and every area is very distinct, very unique, um, has different, you know, characteristics, different challenges, different drivers. So there's no kind of off the peg kind of, you know, <laughs> solution or approach, um, which is good. And I think as, you know, as projects evolve, you know, everybody's learning from what other, other people have done before and improving on that. So I think it's it's quite exciting how this whole kind of world of, of kind of placemaking in this context has, has evolved, you know, in the years since um, Bankside Urban Forest originally was conceived and launched. The other thing that's happened <clears throat> over the last few years is that emphasis on community engagement and community participation. Um, mm. Obviously, the business, uh, the businesses themselves are part of that community. But you mentioned this kind of, you know, longstanding residential community in Bankside. Are there tensions between, you know, the the customer base, perhaps, which is you know, perhaps more tourist led around there? That might be a misconception, um, yeah. and kind of resident need. Yeah, I think it's. Um... I think it's always been a sort of fine balancing act, I suppose, not, you know, to keep all constituencies um, engaged and on board and enthused um, with what we were, ha with what we, you know, have been working on. Um, and I think, you know, over the, the time, um, certainly that I worked in Bankside, I think we, we probably got better, you know, the, the more we, we, worked on projects, got projects off the ground and implemented. I think we, we you know, we refined our methods and, you know, we, we sort of got a bit more sophisticated, I think, over the years in terms of how we engaged with the, the wider kind of community um, 
within the the area and and sort of brought them with us um and you know i think the the you know one of the big strengths i think for um certainly for banks at urban forest and low line was that it it was always a a partnership so it was never just one organization you know chomping at the bit to to do projects it was always a sort of um a joint and shared endeavor um which you know which i think really helped to to kind of bring people with us as well what does sophisticated uh, community engagement or participation look like? Well, I think it's kind of, you know, rather than going to the community with sort of a, a set project and these are our proposals, it's kind of working with the community to kind of shape the brief before it's even commissioned and kind of identify the priorities um, and, you know, to get their get their sort of input on that and to be part of the, the process as opposed to you know, here, here's something we're going to dump by, <laughs> you know, this project has come out of nowhere, this is what we're doing, and, you know, um, what do you think? So I think, you know, we've we've kind of, you know, we kind of flipped, I suppose, the the way we we, we conceived and um, procured projects, I think, as we, as time went on in Bankside, so it was a lot more involving the community earlier on. And I think that's kind of... Um, you know, I think in terms of the wider kind of development context, I think developers are kind of beginning to see that as well um, as a benefit to, you know, to to getting through sort of the planning process of kind of engaging communities like before they even go into planning um, seems to, or certainly in Bankside, became more of the norm um, over the years, which I thought was rather interesting. So tell me about Low Line. Where did that project come from? Did it did it spring out of Bankside Urban Forest and, and what is it? Yeah, so it sort of did. Um, it's a so the the um, the low line stemmed actually from a design or an ideas competition that the GLA and the Landscape Institute hosted back in 2012. Um, and at that time, the the High Line in New York had been open for a couple of years, and everybody was you know was buzzing with excitement about how that you know how transformative it was. Um, and so this ideas competition was held um, over the summer, I think, of 2012. And a local resident actually in Bankside, um, a guy called David Stevens, um, he is a retired architect and um, he put in an idea into the competition uh, for a project called the Low Line, which was very much focused on the railway viaducts and the Victorian amazing railway viaducts that crisscross Bankside. Um, and really kind of characterize the neighborhood because we have like, you know, incredible um, brick, you know, Victorian like feet of engineering brick uh, viaducts that crisscross the neighborhood um, and sever, kind of physically sever, you know, the neighborhoods. Um, and he saw the, the low line as uh, an idea to start to kind of stitch together um, you know the different different stretches of the, the railway viaduct where they where it's been blocked off to um, to pedestrian access um, and to to start to kind of green up those those little routes that run immediately adjacent to the the railway arches along the ground. Um, so he he submitted the idea, which wasn't shortlisted, but it it really resonated um, with the local community in in Bankside. And so at that time, um, Better Bankside sort of picked up the mantle and uh, you know did a bit more sort of thinking and. Um, you know, did a little bit more analysis as to how that might be realized 
in in Bankside. Um, and then, you know, as we developed our thinking, um, neighboring areas like London Bridge and Bermondsey, they were like, oh, the railway comes down here too. And it would be amazing if we could have this continuous walkway along the railway viaduct or along the base of the viaduct, you know, that's car free. Um, you know, that's really green, that kind of supports activity in the railway arches. And um, so that's, so it kind of evolved over, over the years and culminated or, you know, more recently in securing some good growth funding from the Mayor of London um, to implement some, some pilot projects. Um, and we were also very fortunate to, um, to receive some funding from a philanthropic trust called the, the Lund Trust. And they were really interested in um, developing a, a sort of ecological strategy for the low line. So they gave us um, some funding to host a, an international design competition to develop that green vision for the low line. So that was um, something that we, we delivered with REBA competitions about, um, about two, three years ago now. Um, and that was won by a consortium led by PDP London, who were fantastic Um architect-led team, but um, encompassed, you know, environmental designers, landscape architects, ecologists. So it was another really, really rich um, multidisciplinary team sort of rising to the, the challenge that the low line presented. Walking along the low line, it feels really effortless. You know, it doesn't feel um, like an unnatural route to take. Uh, is that um, how it started or what works had to happen to kind of enable, you know, that connectivity? Um, I mean, yeah. I imagine just signposting must have been a really huge part of it <laughs> because it's the kind of neighborhood you do feel lost in. Yeah. That's not so much the case anymore when you when you hit the low line. No, and I guess the the, the viaduct is the, is the kind of wayfinding. <laughs> you follow the the railway. I guess we we often kind of compare the low line to um, kind of how the Thames path in London sort of has evolved over the last 40, 50 years. Where you know if you went back to the seventies, you probably wouldn't have been able to walk continuously, you know, along the river, you know, down to Greenwich, uh, and it took. You know the, the vision of kind of yes opening up this this river walkway and then sort of some of the the regulatory tools of kind of planning um to help realize the the opening up of of different stretches of the riverside and i think the low line is is very similar to that that there are kind of physical blockages along the way that mean that you can't you know follow it continuously and so it's you know it's going to take some time to unblock some of those physical um, impediments. But in the meantime, there are stretches that are very navigable and have like really interesting things happening along. Um, and I think what the low line partnership is trying to achieve is to, you know, add to that already like rich infrastructure by, you know, getting more, um, more greening into the, the route. So it becomes um, a more welcoming environment um, for people, but also for nature. Um, and supports the you know the economic activity in the in the railway arches that um, that run alongside the the route itself. Because if people have visited the High Line, that's of course you know very green, very planted along the yeah. way. The Low Line is it's totally is not different like that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It, and it's again, more about that bricks, that engineering infrastructure. It feels much more. Um, yeah. Yeah, it feels much more of a celebration of that heritage. Absolutely. No, it's an incredible structure. And it's so under, 
like a lot of it is so under-celebrated. But actually, having said that, in, in Bankside and Waterloo and Vauxhall, sort of back in the, the early noughties, um, an organisation called Cross River Partnership um, had a, a programme called Light at the End of the Tunnel, which worked, uh, which was a fantastic initiative that focused on the um, the roads that kind of go under the arches. So like, you know, the streets that, um, you know, take in different different arches um where they teamed up lighting um designers and artists with uh with different sites and so they were able to kind of improve the, the kind of safety and security of you know walking you know across the viaduct and under under arches um so there've been some really really great kind of lighting installations installed on some of these spaces over the years and and that was done kind of prior to the the low line being a, a sort of fixed idea um, so there's, you know, there's always been sort of thinking about how can the, the viaduct be made, you know, um, kind of curated, I suppose, a bit more and, and celebrated a bit more. These projects are both incremental. They seem to kind of, you know, yeah. a little bit happens here, a little bit happens there. What are the advantages of that approach to development? Is it just kind of an a necessary evil or are there advantages to something that rolls out over time? Oh uh, no, I, I definitely think there's advantages to something that that rolls out over time. I think it's it it's far more flexible. You can be you know much more sort of you know site specific and and more targeted in your investment. You know it all doesn't have to happen at once. So if you don't have one piece of the puzzle, you know just stop the whole the whole you know um, the whole vision. Um, you can be much more sort of nimble in applying for funding and shaping projects. Like for me, the incremental nature was, you know, was so fundamental to to the success of that that approach. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to the kind of master plan that it's, you know, it's not a, a sort of a master plan for the area that says, oh, you have to do it in this sequence and, you know, you need X amount of, of money to make it happen. Um, this was just far more nimble and, and flexible and different people could, you know, contribute in different ways, be that through their own sort of projects and ideas or investment or, um, you know, it, it was just far more richer, I think, being an incremental process than, than a, a big set piece. The micro plan. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> But both projects have, I mean, maybe it's because this context of this neighborhood, which has so much art and, and culture now or since 2000, um, but also before um, and historically, um, I, I, there is a kind of an art and culture element to the low line. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the art strategy? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Bankside um, has been or still is a hugely creative um, neighbourhood. You know, we've got a huge amount of creative industries based there. We've got big cultural institutions. So kind of creativity and creative practice has always been kind of at the heart of, of projects. Um, and, you know, I think that's kind of... Um, while there hasn't been a sort of art strategy kind of in the formal sense of the word, it's always been um, embedded, you know, in our projects. So, you know, you'll if you visit um, Bankside and explore sort of some of the projects that we'll, we've delivered, you know, you'll find, you know, beautiful, beautifully crafted and executed elements, you know, design elements in the streetscape. 
um, you know, that I just don't think would would have been implemented were it not for this kind of overarching, you know, vision and strategy for the neighbourhood. Um, so beautiful kind of, um, you know, um, like, for instance, on, on Ewer Street, which is this uh, tiny little back street that goes under the railway viaduct, kind of just um, off Union Street in, in Bankside. You know, there's a couple of really beautiful um, design elements that uh, mark the, the point of an old uh, medieval burial ground. And that's like a beautiful stone um, kind of hand carved that just kind of marks very solemnly the, the spot where the, the burial ground used to be. Um, on the opposite side of the road, you know, you'd, and you'd so easily miss these things, but then one day you might stumble across it and it, it's kind of like the jewel and the, the rut. Um, across the road, there's a tiny little coal hole cover on the pavement, which um, has details of uh, local people who sadly lost their lives in an air raid back in World War II uh, on that site as well. Um, so like, so, so the creativity and the, the art, art and the, the creative practice, you know, kind of reveals itself in, in lots of, of different ways. Um, so that's kind of one example. Another example is, you know, the, the colourful crossings that we did, um, you know, where we worked with incredible artists like Camille Wallala and Thierry Noir at um, transforming some of the pedestrian crossings on, on Southwark Street into, you know, into artworks. Um, so, like, so the art and and creativity has always kind of been embedded in in the the day to day work. And it's a form of storytelling, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. connecting into past and present and and future. Absolutely, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've started this new um, endeavor this year, where pathways meet. Do you want to talk a little bit about you know what sparked you to kind of start up your own? Um, you know, set out your stall, so to speak. And <laughs> what, what kind of work are you hoping to do in the in in the future? What is your ambition for for where Pathways Meet? Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, so I I moved on from Better Bankside earlier this year um, to sort of strike out on my own. So I have um, I've uh, set up a, a small placemaking, creative placemaking consultancy called Where Pathways Meet. And I think kind of after after 14 years kind of working on sort of the client side of commissioning lots of different types of projects in the in the urban realm from from highways to green infrastructure to kind of creative projects. I just I felt like I I needed to kind of spread my wings, I think, a little bit um, a little bit wider. So I um I have yeah created a, a sort of small consultancy and I'm really keen to kind of take some of the skills and the learning that I have developed over these last kind of 14 years in Bankside to help other organizations kind of think about their neighborhoods and their places and see how I can add value um, you know to what they're to what they're thinking and you know give them some advice and um, expertise on on sort of thinking creatively about how they can transform um, transform those spaces. So at the moment, I'm um, working on a couple of, of projects um, and actually working with a lot of architects at the moment, um, kind of small practices that are really keen to kind of build their expertise in um, in placemaking and uh, crafting kind of place strategies. Um, so that's been, been really good fun. But equally, I'm really keen to see if there's organisations out there that might need kind of, you know, on the client side, like wanting to commission work. 
um, but not sure where to start. I feel I can really bring some value to that as well. So yeah, I'm excited to, about what the future holds. And, you know, it's lovely to be kind of spreading my wings a bit further than than Bankside because um, I worked there for 14 years. And while it's an absolutely fantastic neighborhood, it is, you know, a tiny part of London and a tiny part of the UK. So, um, so I'm looking forward to kind of exploring projects in in other parts of of London and other parts of um, of of the UK. In your um, you know blurb around where pathways meet, you talk about working in the context of the climate emergency. What does that mean for you um, in terms of your approach to uh, to the work that you do? Yeah, I think for me that means trying to trying to find sort of, or trying not to miss the opportunities, you know, to, um, you know, to weave in that, that green infrastructure into, into the projects. And I just, you know, and I, I kind of, in some respects, I kind of lament, you know, that so I, you know, walking around, you see so many missed opportunities where, you know, a street has been invested in or space has been invested in and you just think oh my gosh this is all just hard landscape <laughs> and you know where's the soft stuff where are the trees where is the planting and um you know how does it drain so it's all of those all of those elements it's kind of how can we how can we create places that you know that deliver so much more um you know for for people and for for the environment um, so I'm re just really keen to, you know, to find those opportunities to um, to try and influence um, influence kind of a different approach to um, to delivering these these improvements and transformations of of spaces and places in in urban contexts. It's a great provocation for people. You know, how could this deliver more? How could this deliver urban shading or? you know yeah, clean air or draining absolutely and you know just all the benefits that come with that um so yeah so i just feel like that there's so much more that um that we can be doing um and you know just trying to bring people on that on that journey i think is is absolutely what i'm i'm keen to explore in this next chapter i get a lot of um rallying cries from landscape architects saying you know, we need to be brought in early, this climate mm. emergency. That's, you know, that's the stuff that we do. We do, you know, we do, we are integral to, to tackling yeah. those issues and getting more Absolutely. out of it. Is that, it's a feeling that you share? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think, I think kind of the most successful projects, I think, are those that tend to have, you know, a multidisciplinary approach to you know to to working on them um and i think you know just going back to the low line and the the kind of um the the green vision that i i mentioned you know the team that won that had you know it, it, uh, they had architects they had environmental designers they had ecologists and landscape architects and you know that was just such a rich um rich mix of expertise to really really sort of think out of the box and to think um you know, to elevate the kind of thinking and the ambition for, um, you know, for the kind of environmental and, and ecological aspects of, of the low line. Um, so I always kind of, you know, I always feel, you know, the multidisciplinary approach is, is going to be the, 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 way, the way to go, the way to kind of derive the, the most impact, I think. Um, so no singular, <laughs> no singular design genius and no master plan. Yeah, I think, you know, you just need that. You need that collaboration, that creative collaboration. 
um, to to really help tackle some of the you know the fundamental issues that we're facing. Val, that just leaves me to thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks so much, Christine. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Developer Podcast, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. If you like what we do, please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And you can also support us on Patreon or as an organization member. Thanks to all our organization members. 